Today's reading is Romans 12, verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Well, good morning. I've been told you're used to longer passages of Scripture. Well, super good to be here. I always forget Redeemer City. You like the bright lights. Uh, so I'll try to get used to that. But hey, we had a super awesome time uh, talking about the basement for, I see some students out here, super awesome weekend. Uh, we served on Friday all day, literally from like 9 to 3, and then we played all day yesterday at Noah's Ark, and it was fantastic. Um, your students who are here did a great job serving and did a great job playing. And I learned a few things about uh, some of your students. I learned... Um, Elise and Evelyn, they, they share the same birthday. I learned that. Um, I learned that Weston, who's not here, but Weston, I learned that Weston is literally the most patient human being I've ever met. He was willing to stand in any line for his desired ride, and it didn't matter how long the ride was. He would just wait there patiently. I waited for a ride with him for over an hour and a half. No complaints. He, he was just so patient and loved the ride. I love that about him. It inspires me. I also learned that, um, Amanda, you, your, your children actually have, there's actually more children in your family. I learned that, like, Josiah is, is part of your family. Like, there's this growing, there's, like, there's the family within a family. The, the kids, like, adopted each other and part of their families. Inside story, I guess. But anyways, I learned a lot about these students this week, and it was great. I love it. Thank you for letting me hang out with your students. Uh, the basement really, like, I love to talk about the basement while I'm, while I'm up here. It's, it's a place of belonging, right? We want students to know, ultimately, that they belong to, G, to Jesus, but there's a sense of belonging uh, that they can find um, through just, just friendships uh, with, with adults who love Jesus and also through peers. Um, so we want to be a place uh, where students can come uh, and belong and, and, and ultimately to see students in our city throughout Madison uh, living out the gospel in radical ways. Uh, we, we would love to see that continue to grow. So thank you so much for letting your students participate in that. We love it. We love this collectiveness uh, of doing this together with you all. And so if you're listening online or here and you have students, send them. We would love, love to have your students 6th through 12th grade. And if you're not in 6th grade yet, hold on. Be patient like Weston. Uh, but yeah, uh, continuing the introduction here, um, I think it's kind of crazy that as we begin this Madison Multiply series that you guys, you all, have literally been in this book of Romans, and like this sermon series falls like on the page that you're about, you know, would have been going on anyways. We're here at the Vine, we've been two years in Matthew, so we've had to like pull out a time out and be like, okay, what's this book called Romans, and like have to study Romans now. I think you all have some pretty strong insider influences, Madison Multiply thing, is all I'm saying. Uh, I think something's going on here. But the series title, like you saw on the slide, is, is Life Together in Light of God's Mercies. And uh, this preaching series, as we talked about it earlier, this, this winter was just this, this unified desire that, just to see the gospel of Jesus transform our churches. That the gospel of Jesus would transform our churches to continue to be communities that are striving together as God's family to grow in this love and unity and holiness. And over these next five weeks, we've intentionally, as, as you know, we've intentionally chose just one passage of Scripture that hopefully unifies us and, and roots us, that we can really marinate our souls uh, as, we, as we think about these concrete and tangible instructions that Paul gives us of what does this look like? What does it look like to live out the gospel in community? And specifically, you're going to hear this over the next five weeks. 
of, of how we've been called to love one another, uh, of how we've been called towards persistent joy, uh, of how we've been called to, to overcome evil, and, and how we've been called towards humility. And today we're going to look at how we've been called to abounding zeal, abounding zeal. So let's, let's, uh, let's turn our eyes to Jesus and uh, ask for his help this morning. Lord, we love you, and we just ask again, Lord, that you would open our hearts to your word and, our word, and your word to our hearts. Lord, we pray that you'd prune back any hedge of dis- disbelief or sin, that we may see you more clearly. Lord, we need your help by the power of the Spirit to transform us. In your name we pray, amen. Well, I want to begin our time by, by reading a quote, might be familiar to some, but from theologian Francis Schaeffer years, years back, he said this, he said, the church is Jesus's final apologetic to the world. The church is Jesus's final apologetic uh, to the world. And if he's right, if his assessment is right, my question simply is, well, well how are we doing? How are we as a church doing? What would the world say about the church? Well, in this same article that Schaefer made this quote, he continues, and quite honestly, pretty tragically, he continues and says this, Christians have not always presented a pretty picture to the world. He says, too often they have failed to show the beauty of love and oneness of Christ, the holiness of God. And as a result, the world has turned away. And he ponders, must Christians continue to stand with arms folded, presenting to men and women a tarnished image of God, a shattered body of Christ? And I I read this, and quite honestly, I'm I'm frightened by it. Frightened that I could be found culpable of tarnishing the image of God of presenting to my community, to Madison, right, a shattered body of Christ. And so let's bring that question a little nearer to us this morning and say, what would Fitchburg, you know, what would they say about Redeemer City? Would they look at the church and and, and, in a good way be confused of like, how can these people so different but united in love and mercy and care towards one another? Would they see these observable evidences of, of God's gospel in action? Or would they look upon the church and maybe sadly observe that this maybe just feels like any other social club that just so happens to meet on Sunday mornings like a church? And if church is merely a social club, man, I can think of a lot of other clubs I'd rather join, right? Right? Friends, I am convinced that the message and the power of the gospel compels us, the body of Christ, God's family, the church, to be a community far more attractive and far more valuable than any community that our world has to offer. In fact, I am convinced that if we live out Romans 12 by the Spirit of God, folks in our community will be beating down our doors trying to get in. Turn with me to Romans 12 if you're not there. And our big idea this morning is simply this, that in light of God's mercies, we're to live passionately for Jesus. That in light of God's mercies, we are to live passionately for Jesus. And our direction is threefold. If you're taking notes, it's threefold. We we want to first look at our intensity, then we want to look at our focus, and then lastly, our fuel. 
So we're going to look at our intensity, our focus, and then our fuel. We're ready to go? But first off, our intensity. And Paul lays it out very plainly there in verse 11. He says this, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. There's our intensity. And he says it really in two different ways here, right? There's a a negative form of, of, hey, don't be slothful. But then he says it in a positive sense of be fervent. And, And really, I think Paul is really just saying the same thing in two different ways. And I think he's really saying live passionately. That this is our intensity, to, to live passionately, to, to, to not be slothful, but to be fervent. Not slothful, but fervent. And, and let's look at a closer look at both of these phrases, because I think Paul sets up an incredible image for us to walk home with. First, not slothful. If you're like me, I knew one thing about sloths as I began the week. Sloths are slow. So you ask, how slow are they, Right? Well, they are so slow that they're slower than snails, they're slower than tortoises. I fact-check this, you can, you can fact-check me, but sloths are the slowest mammal in the world, topping out. This is, we're in the Olympics, right, all these men and women's blazing speeds. They top out at a speed of .003 miles per hour. Meaning they, took, they, they, can take a, they can go a foot every you know, three minutes. That's, that's their speed. That's their top speed. Well, I continue to go on my deep dive of sloths this week, and this is helpful information for your next trivia night. But here we go. Amuse me. Sloths, this is fascinating. They eat, they sleep, they mate, and they give birth in trees. They live in trees 90% of their life, upside down. I didn't know that. Sloths are completely blind in bright daylight. This doesn't go well for parenting, right? If you're a mama sloth, they they can't even see their baby sloth five feet away. Good for the child, not so much for the mama. And this is fascinating. Sloths, they eat leaves as they're in the tree, right? But they don't eat too many because it takes up to 30 days. Check this out. 30 days for them to digest one single leaf. One leaf, 30 days. In fact, sloths' lifestyles, they're so, I can't say this word well, sedentary, uh, you know what I'm trying to say? They're so, like, just sitting there that actually, like, moss or algae will grow on their fur. And this is actually their advantage because their only protection in the wild is to hide in the trees, and they need camouflage. And so this moss hides them. They can't run away. But they purposely are so slow that they allow this moss to grow on them. And if you're curious, I won't say it here in this space, but you can Google their bathroom behaviors. It's, it's interesting. So what did we learn? <laughs> Other than those on their phones Googling sloths' bathroom behaviors right now. Uh, we learned that sloths are definitely top ten most fascinating creatures that God created, number one. Number two... And the point is this, that sloths are energy-saving mammals. Sloths are energy-saving mammals. Are sloths lazy, like we call sloths lazy? Yeah, that, that's fair. That's a fair assessment. Are, are sloths sluggish? Sure. Are, are sloths lacking energy? Yes. But there are all these things, right, for a reason. 
Sloths intentionally live life at a slow pace in order to survive. You see, it's more than just being slow. They want to be slow. It's a mindset, an approach to life, to intentionally live life in a sluggish, slow, shuffling of your feet manner. And so Paul says, don't be slothful. Don't have this slothful mindset of of hanging back, of, of not moving forward. And specifically, he says, don't be slothful in what? In verse 11. He says, don't be slothful in zeal. Don't be slothful in zeal. And zeal is not a word that we are, at least for me, I don't use zeal often, right? So I went to the dictionary, and Webster defines zeal as a great energy or a great enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. A great energy or a great enthusiasm. And so I think of the Deer District, right? We probably all saw photos. Maybe some of you were down there. I don't know. But while the Bucks were making their NBA championship run, right? We all saw those images of fifty to 70,000 people like packed into downtown Milwaukee cheering on their beloved Bucks. Incredible zeal, right? This great energy, enthusiasm to witness their team win a championship for the first time in 50 years. That, that's zeal. Like to stand literally in the heat of summer for hours with 50,000 other sweaty, smelly human beings. I didn't see a toilet in sight. You ever think about that? There's no quick escape from that fray, but they're in it for the long haul because they have zeal. They have a great energy and enthusiasm and a pursuit of a cause to see their team win. Now, whether it's zeal for the bucks or not, we all possess an energy and enthusiasm for something in our lives, right? Maybe it's academically, we're pursuing a degree or a goal. Maybe it's in work, right? Pursuing some sort of promotion or uh, performance standard. Or maybe it's zeal and athletic goals, whether it's running or swimming or something. We, we want to accomplish something. We have great energy and enthusiasm towards it, and so on and so on, right? We all have zeal towards something. And here in verse 11, Paul says, don't be slothful in zeal. Don't be slothful in zeal. And that is for us on matters that relate to the truth and life of Jesus, which is the context here of Romans 12. Our mindset is not to be like that of a sloth. That's not to be our mindset. Intentionally lagging behind, sluggish, slow, shuffling our feet, lacking energy, like this deflated enthusiasm for the cost of Christ. That's not who we are to be when it comes to truth and life of Jesus. Don't be slothful in zeal, but what does he say? He says, be fervent. Be fervent. And the word used for fervent, the second image that Paul gives us, is literally means to boil over. To boil over. And for this, I think of all the times I make mac and cheese for my three little kiddos. Right? Step one, fill the pot with water. Check. Step two, place it on a hot stove. Check. I'm so good so far. Step three, I don't know why I do it, but I always walk away, right? And then, of course, you know how it goes, right? The pot begins to, to boil over, and before I know it, I have a hot mess. Like, it's, it's the, the pot is, like, f- you know, flooding the, the kitchen, the, the, the stove, the floor. Like, it's a hot mess, literally. And this is, this is what Paul is saying, though. That, that our intensity to God and to his mission should be like a pot of uncontrollable, boiling over water. Like bubbling over the pot with great ferocity, spilling out to everyone and to everything. 
That should be our intensity. And we couldn't have two completely, more completely different pictures now, could we? Of a slow-moving sloth and a bubbling-over pot of hot water. Expressing, I think, the singular idea to live passionately. Don't be slothful. Be fervent. Be bubbling over with this uncontrollable ferocity. Just this past week, my family, uh, we had a four-day excursion to, to Michigan with Emily's side of the family. And it was fantastic. On the west side, by the lake, had an Airbnb. It was great. And day one of our trip, after we get there, our van, like, um, uh, uh, excuse me, the, the dashboard lit up like the little battery sign right? It comes on. We're already in Michigan. The, the sign comes on. So, of course, I'm like, no big deal. Doesn't mean anything, right? We can keep going. We can enjoy our time. It's probably a fluke. It'll go away next time we start a car, right? But for four days, it kept coming on. So, fast forward now to five minutes. We've been in Michigan four days. Fast forward now, five minutes before we're going to come home to Madison. The light is still on. So, being the husband, I'm like, maybe I should call the mechanic. So, I call my mechanic in Madison, and he says, yeah, do not leave Michigan. Go get it looked at. So fortunately, there's a mechanic just down the road, and of course, the alternator is broken, right? Uh, but here we are. We were on our way back to Madison. The van is all packed from four days of being, you know how it is with, with kids, right? It's, it's crazy full. Uh, it's nap time, so the kids are tired. They're restless. I have a van full of, you know, all of our things, and this is like foreign land. We live in Madison, not Michigan. So it's like, what do we do? It's not a great spot to be in. So Emily's brother-in-law has parents who actually live in this area. And so we called them up. They don't know us. We're not family to them. But we're like, hey, here's a situation. Can we, like, get some help? You know? Uh, and so within minutes, literally minutes, I'm not even lying to any of this, and within minutes of this phone call, they call their own mechanic. They call their own mechanic and get us an appointment with him. Whoever mechanic I had called was like, hey, we can get you in like uh, maybe next week, you know, like, but their mechanic's like, yeah, we can get you in right now. They've given us their AAA details in case we needed a tow. They had already put bed sheets into their washer and dryer, and they're like, hey, stay as long as you need. If you need overnight, you can stay here. They began to pull out food, like telling us, hey, we can have chicken. We can get the grill going. We have all these dinner plans for you. As we pull into the driveway, um, after we get there, we're, we're greeted in the driveway with this mother who comes out with snacks in hand for our tired, hungry kids. Like, here's snacks for your kids. And, and, and she even gives special toys to each one of our daughters. She doesn't know who they are or how old they are, but she, here's a special toy for you to have while you're here. And she gives, uh, she gives us towels because they have a pool. And she's like, hey, the pool's open. Go enjoy yourself. Like, she doesn't know who we are. And when we finally do leave, they gather us together in the driveway and they just pray over us as a family. They pray for our safety, obviously, on the way home. They just pray for our parenting. They pray for our relationship with God. They pray for our marriage. Honestly, Emily and I, we've never felt more welcomed in our life. There's an unscheduled, unplanned, unprompted visit with folks. They don't know us other than just through Facebook posts of, like, we're in-laws of in-laws, you know. But here they are. Loving and serving us. See, I think this is, this is what fervency in action looks like. This is what it looks like to, to bubble over with such uncontrollable ferocity to serve those around you. Whoever God puts in your path, this ferocity to serve. This is our intensity to live passionately. 
As I think about our own lives, when our phone buzzes right with that Slack notification again from the needs channel, I think you guys probably have that, right? Is our gut, our gut impulse just to swipe clear, or is it to actually read it? Be like, man, is there a way that I can meet this need right now? Or maybe it's actually just subscribing to the channel. It means in, in city group life that we, when we show up, it's not just about me, but I'm intently leaning in. I'm engaging with those in our group. I'm listening to the conversation. I'm asking questions. I'm eager to know the people that God has put into my life to pray for, to love, uh, to love and to serve. We go to city group really with a purpose, an intensity. And it's the same in our neighborhood, in our work, to consider who is in our life. That with uncontrollable ferocity that we can serve whom God has placed around us. Our response to God's truth in life is not that of half-heartedness or lukewarmness or laziness or sluggishness or slothfulness. That's inappropriate. Because being saved by Jesus is the greatest thing in the world. Amen? Being saved by Jesus means having eternal life. You cannot die. Being saved by Jesus means you will live forever in overwhelming joy. And not to be passionate about this is a sign of serious spiritual blindness. Which is why Jesus spoke so strongly to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3. You know it, right? Because you are what? Because you are lukewarm. Neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And to spit out is just a cleaned up way of saying vomit. These are actually pretty graphic words that Jesus uses here. Jesus looks at this church, at their lukewarmness, and says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And our bodies really vomit probably for really two reasons, right? There's there's some sort of poison, we need to expel it. Or we're disgusted at something in our mouth, and we spit it out, we expel it. You see, lukewarm Christianity is disgusting, to Jesus. In our world today, we often live in such an apathetic way that, that really we confuse doing church for like one hour on Sunday mornings as thinking that we're living these passionate, on fire uh, lives to God. But friends, we must go to the glory and the hope of Scripture to, to, to allow His words to speak and to fill us with His zeal and passion and earnest into our spirit. I think a great practice of this is just to ask, like, what verses renew your spirit, reviving your zeal? What verses do you cling to? I know for me, I think of Psalm 141 that says, My eyes are fixed upon God because He is the one who is my refuge. Or in Psalm 133, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's faithful love is towards those who fear Him. And his righteousness extends even towards our children's children. Man, I cling to that promise. I encourage you to find a verse that revives your soul and to write it out in your own handwriting. And to put it on your dashboard of your car, the, the mirror of your you know, sink. Keep it near and to meditate on it. To revive your soul. Our intensity is to live passionately. And secondly, our focus Our focus, it comes in the second half of verse 11, simply says, serve who? The Lord. 
serve the Lord. All of this intensity, this ferocity has a focus. It's Jesus. That's what all this passion is for. And to grab the fullest flavor, like the sharpest color of this focus, we need to understand the word that Paul uses here as it's rendered in our translations as uh, of serve. And hang with me because this is, this is fairly interesting and important. But in this chapter alone, chapter 12, Paul actually uses three different and distinct Greek words that we all translate in our English as serve or, or service. If you flip back to verse, chapter, or verse 1, uh, of chapter 12, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, um, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present what? Um, uh, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, or some translations will say service. That we are to present our bodies, which is our spiritual service. And, and so, for the meaning of this word, we can think like we can think Old Testament, right? Of, of priests bringing an animal for sacrifice. Or we can think about, you know, coming to church and, and singing songs, but it's this reverential service or worship that we do in like a temple or church That's, that we could render that as service. Or in verse 7, as, as Paul's talking about the many different body parts of, uh, you know, a body and how that relates to uh, the, the members of a church, in verse 7 he says, if, if your gift is, is, is service, then, then you're, you're called to serve. So we see that word there, and we, we can think of this word as it literally means to wait on table. So we can think about going to a restaurant, right, and having a waiter or waitress, waitress like waiting on our needs, right? We're meeting the needs, the practical needs that are right in front of us. But that's not, none, neither one of those two words is the word that we have in verse 11. The word in verse 11 that we translate service in our English is actually the intense service of slavery. It's bond service. You see that the emphasis here, the focus, is that we see ourselves as slaves to Jesus. That we give total service to Him, having no other masters. That we fully render our lives with that same zeal, that same enthusiasm, that same energy and excitement, that bubbling over ferocity of eagerness to serve Jesus. And if this language of slavery sounds harsh, I get it. Realize that you're either a slave of Jesus or Satan. And Jesus is far more loving, caring master, whereas the devil is a self-serving tyrant. It's far better to be Christ's slave than enslaved to sin and the devil. You see, understanding this, this emphasis, I think, colors the difference in how we think of serving the Lord. That is, in our apathetic, like, navel-gazing type of default human tendency, we typically confuse serving the Lord with volunteerism. What I mean is there's a fundamental difference between volunteers and slaves. Volunteers, right, they choose when and how they will serve. Slaves are on call day and night. Whether they feel like serving or not, they have to. Volunteers can quit serving whenever they desire. Slaves are slaves for life. Volunteers can have expectations to be treated with respect for proper working conditions, to be honored for their service. Slaves have no right for any such expectation. As a slave of Christ, we offer total service to Him, rendering service with great enthusiasm and energy and zeal. 
And, and remember, you guys know this, you've been in Romans, like, who was this book written to? Was it just to the pastor, the lead pastor? No, of course not. Was it just to the ministry leaders? No, of course not. This book was written to the entire church at Rome. And just as Paul says there in verses 4 through 8 that every body part has an important role in the flourishing of the whole body, so too every member of the body of Christ, the church, has great importance in the overall flourishing of the church. Meaning this, there is no such thing as a non-serving member of God's church. And it's as we keep Jesus as the focus for for why and for how and for who we serve that we avoid three common ditches of Christian service. Ditch one that we can fall in is serving self, not Jesus. We can fall in the ditch of serving self, not Jesus. Paul speaks to this in Romans 16. It will be on the screen. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. You see here, Paul is contrasting serving Jesus versus serving our own really lustful appetites. And tragically, we're, we're, we're familiar with the more sensational headlines, right, of church leaders satisfying their own uh, lustful appetites of power or greed or, or sexual fulfillment rather than this genuine desire to serve the welfare of their entrusted flock, right? We're familiar with those headlines. But there's also the more subtle snares of serving our own appetites for us as well, such as the sales pitch that's often used in church ministry of, hey, you know, by serving, you're actually going to benefit a lot personally. It might mean more to you than those you serve, right? You've heard that. And while that may be true, the messaging behind it really speaks to this idolatrous desire of our hearts that serving is really about me, about what it fulfills for me, that I love this feeling of being significant, that I crave the praise of what others are are saying about me, that I love this sense of being valued and appreciated. And we should take great joy in serving the Lord. That's not my point. That's so good. But we need to examine our heart motivations. Are we serving Jesus? Or are we simply serving ourselves and our idolatries of our heart? Ditch one, serving self, not Jesus. Ditch two is serving people and not Jesus. And of course, in some sense, right, we're supposed to serve others, such as in Galatians. Paul says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We get that. God calls us to serve each other. That's a good thing. But there's another way in which people serve others that's in the wrong sense. Also in Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I was still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You see, the wrong way of serving people is right to to be a slave to their approval. And and this is really a bondage, right? To to be a, a servant of the opinion of others. To to live with an eye always on what the other is is thinking about me. To be dependent upon the praise of others. But the kind of service that we've been called into by God is really of great liberty. For in service to Jesus, we have an audience of one. No one else. We're freed from the fickle opinions of men and women. We care for one thing. Does Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, approve of what I'm saying and doing? So that's ditch two. Serving 
serving people, not Jesus. And ditch three is really serving this idea of, of, of salvation, of earning our salvation and not Jesus. Again, Paul in Romans says, but now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but the new life of the Spirit. Paul says that as Jesus came, died, and rose again, our focus is no longer to an obedience of a written law, right? But it's to a living person, Jesus. For Jesus now stands where the law once stood. Therefore, serving Jesus, not the law, means believing who Jesus is and believing what he's already accomplished on his death in the empty tomb. That my obedience is, is not, you know, to achieve or earn favor, but my obedience is the manner in which I respond and worship to him for what he's already done. And again, it's this type of service that brings great liberty. It frees us from a slavery of, of works-based salvation to a freedom of eternal joy and relationship. And perhaps you find yourself often in one of these ditches. I know I do. Whether it's serving self over Jesus, serving others over Jesus, serving my own salvation over Jesus. What's important is to, is to recognize and to understand how the gospel comes into play. That the wonderful news of the gospel says to repent and to turn and to believe and to begin anew. It's okay if you're in a ditch. You can repent and confess your sins. Our intensity is to live passionately. Our focus is Jesus. And lastly, our fuel. How the heck do we do this thing about sustaining this uncontrollable ferocity of serving? Sounds great for a day. It was great when we served Madison on Friday with the students, right? But for a lifetime, could I do that every day? How does that happen? What is our fuel? Well, the hinge of all these messages with Madison multiplies verse 1. If you let your eyes fall in verse 1 of chapter 12, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And you guys are going to get this more than any other church in this series. Because of all the things that Paul has shared in, verse, in chapters 1 through 11, all of that, because of the saving grace of Jesus, the gospel of God, this is now how we are to respond. You see, I appeal because of the mercies of God. Because of God's mercies, Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And let's just chat about this for a second, because if you're not familiar with your Bible, this is actually kind of some weird language going on that Paul is talking about. Because when we hear the word sacrifice, we're like, okay, made a sacrifice this morning. I could have slept in, watched the Olympics, right? But I got out of bed. I'm sacrificing. I'm sacrificing. I'm, I'm carrying my cross, Jesus. I'm doing it, right? We can kind of deem those small things as like a personal sacrifice. Like we're, we can think about it a lot of times in that context. But for Paul's readers, when they heard Paul writing this, they'd hear it completely differently. They'd hear sacrifice and immediately think death. You know, they knew this was temple language that Paul's talking about. Language that spoke to the reality that animals were placed on the altar and they, and they were cut and, and bleeded out and died. Sacrifice for Paul's audience equated to death. And yet here in this verse, chapter, verse 1, Paul, Paul makes a case for a, a living sacrifice. That, that's to their ears, right? That's, 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 that's an oxymoron, right? The sacrifice means death. Something was going to die, so how can there be a living sacrifice? Well, let me ask you this. Who was sacrificed for the sake of others and yet lives? Jesus. 
Who was dead but is now alive again? Answer, Jesus. See, Paul borrows this temple language to show that the new pattern of how we are to live is to be patterned after Jesus. That all you who are followers of Jesus, the body of Christ, you and I, we are to be a living sacrifice. That the fire to do in the Christian life comes from being soaked in the fuel of what's already been done. It all goes back to the gospel. As Martin Luther said, to progress in the Christian life is to always begin again. And so we begin again at the gospel. And the message of the gospel says that we were dead in our sin, but have been made alive to God. And having been made alive to God, we no longer pattern our lives, we no longer conform our lives to the things of this world, but we have been transformed, made alive to the things of God, offering to Him our entire lives. Be it the the ordinary, everyday, mundane things that we do, or be it the high church stuff that we do on Sunday. Every instrument, every moment is in service with this boiling over passion for Jesus, my Redeemer and friend. The fuel, the power, the reason we live passionately is the gospel. And it's, it's, it's a fuel that's so powerful that what we know about this Roman church, deeply divided between Jew and Gentile, that the, the, the power of the gospel would, would fuel even a multi-ethnic church to live together in such unity and love, striving to fulfill the mission of God. And as we work out the gospel as a church family here at Redeemer City and Madison multiplied together, may, I, may we pray that, the, that our world of Madison sees the beauty of Jesus. And as we move through Romans 12, I love that you guys get this on the, on the very first Sunday because this, this idea of living passionately should color every single other set of instructions that Paul gives to us. That when we're called to love one another, that we would do so in abounding zeal, right? That when we're called towards persistent joy, that we would do so with, with eagerness. That when we're called to, to overcome evil, that we do so with quick passion, Then we're called towards humility. We do so with this this bubbling ferocity. In light of God's mercies, live passionately for Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you this morning. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for the words written here. We thank you for your gift of salvation that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Lord, we ask that you would bring us anew to the realities of what the gospel is and that we would live with this bubbling over ferocity for the things of you. Lord, help us to do so. May this church, may Redeemer City be a place, a community that others look at and are astounded to see such unity and love and holiness united together as they strive after the gospel. May that be so. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.